39 again. It's part 3. Um, the Lord God made us and knows us intimately. And specifically, I want to look at abortion and the status of the unborn specifically this morning. So let's pray. Father, thank You that You are the God of heaven and earth. You are the God of life. And You call us to choose it. And yet so often, Lord, when we ignore You, we choose death. All of us. And yet I ask this morning that You would reverse that in each and every one of our souls. I pray, God, that You would give me a ready tongue to speak the Word of God in season. I ask, God, that um, those things that might keep somebody from hearing what I'm going to say this morning, be it here in, uh, 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 in the congregation or through the Internet, I ask, God, that You would arrest those things and that You would give people courage to listen. And I ask that You would be glorified through this all. In the name of Christ, I pray. Amen. Nazi Germany can teach us many things about human nature. Worst of which is the capacity humans possess to brutally treat image bearers. Now we already know that over 6,000 Jews were slaughtered. They were tortured in Nazi Germany. They were exterminated. Why? Because their, uh, their lives were not uh, deemed worthy to be lived according to Hitler's idea of a perfect race of man. Now today in America, we champion the rights of animals through organizations such as PETA. Uh, we have commercials on TV asking people to rescue precious animals from cruel treatment. And, and I think this is good. It's, it's pretty bad pictures if, if you see it. Um, uh, Proverbs 12.10 says this, A righteous man has regard for the life of his animal, but even the compassion of the wicked is cruel. And again, Deuteronomy 25.4 says that you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. Now, God cares for His creatures. And those who are righteous ought to care for creatures. It is good to care for an animal. Um, this word regard in the Hebrew means to know. And specifically, how we treat animals reveals our character as image bearers. The righteous are kind or are supposed to be kind to all of God's creatures because they've received God's abundance through them. The ox, the donkey. These animals were a means through which people derived sustenance. Can I get some water please? Thank you. In other words, we're not to look at animals and God's creatures simply because of their usefulness to us. We are to care for them because they are God's special creatures. But something utterly diabolical has happened in this land the last 40 years that should make us quiver at the core. Animals are being treated better than human beings in the land of the free and the home of the brave. And this, through the help of our tax dollars. Now, Greg Kokel, president of Standard Reason, in his blog, asks this question. Is abortion a holocaust? Many Jews recoil at the use of the word holocaust to describe legalized abortion. 
To them it's an offense to the memory of six million Jews who perished under the Third Reich. The Jewish Holocaust was obviously more heinous than the same amount than the same amount of abortions would be. Let's think about that for a minute for a minute. Notice first that this objection depends for its force on a tacit denial that the unborn are fully human. If they are, who would say that taking the life of a youngster, in this case very young, is not the moral equivalent of taking the life of an adult? Generally, we are more shocked by the loss of young life than old, though we would hold that both are equally valuable in virtue of their shared humanity. There does seem to be a sense, though, in which the evil of the Nazi Holocaust was compounded by the circumstances under which it was done. Aborted human beings die relatively quickly and by comparison with little or no mental anguish. This is certainly not always true, but that's another issue. Jews, on the other hand, were treated like animals, terrorized, persecuted, raped, beaten, and then eventually murdered. The Nazi Holocaust was worse than the abortion Holocaust, not because the unborn are not human, but because of the barbaric conditions under which Nazis exterminated those they no longer valued. Both are unspeakably evil, purely on the merit of the number of human lives sacrificed. However, in the case of the Jewish Holocaust, the evil is compounded by the circumstances under which it was done. Clearly, not all Holocausts are equal. The numerous examples of ethnic cleansing in this century are made more egregious by the additional suffering, loss, and assault on human dignity they entail. Still, the destruction of over a million unborn children each year is a holocaust of significant magnitude simply because valuable human beings were wantonly destroyed. Today I want to talk about the issue of abortion. And I want to try to make sense out of it. What is it? Uh, Who are the players? And and what's our personal responsibility in light of what we're going to hear? Uh, In order to do this, we want to look at God's two books. And as I've said it before, I'll say it again. There is God's big book, which is the book of nature, which is called General Revelation. Then there's God's little book, which is the book of redemption. This is where God has spoken through the apostles and prophets and speaks to us redemptively, lets us understand and peer into what He actually thinks about who we are and where our destiny is to be in light of who He is. Now, the weight of this topic culturally is... I can't, I can't underestimate it. It seems that only about a decade ago or so, maybe even a little bit longer, the hot issue to debate on campaigns, political campaigns, was the abortion issue. It was the great divide. Um, today, it seems like the great divide is uh, same-sex marriage and homosexual rights. And kind of we think that the abortion issue... Is, is no longer a, a hot topic. Um, but I think that the abortion issue is much weightier than the homosexual uh, issue, specifically because of the nature and the un, of the unborn. Now I know today here, or those listening through the internet, um, have either had an abortion, uh, were part of causing someone to get pregnant that had an abortion, or you know somebody who's had an abortion. And there's a lot of pain. There's guilt. Um, uh, there's quiet suffering. And um, I, I want to say to you that there's real forgiveness in Christ. That you do not have to uh, keep the weight of that guilt if that is you. Uh, because Jesus is 
the healer. Jesus is the Savior. Jesus has come to restore broken souls and everybody that's hearing my voice is a broken soul whether they have committed an abortion or not. That is why Christ came to fix what Adam ruined. And so this morning I want to quickly um, remind you of Psalm 139 and, and, and some of the main points that I previously made. And first of all, um, th- th- this psalm, it, it, there's three things that come to mind. It is both perplexing, weighty, and there is no comparison to the God of the psalmist. Uh, first of all, it's perplexing because of God's attributes. God is all-knowing, all-powerful, all-good, all-wise. And, and, per- and it is weighty because God's disposition to human image bearers is not just that He is this great uh, Creator that's utterly transcendent, but He is eminent. He is personal. And He can be known. Now, God, the God of Scripture is unlike any other God. No other God can compare to Him. And uh, I, I talked about that last time, but what was established is this, is that with respect to God's attributes, is that the Lord's eyes are ever on the people that He loves. They are on the righteous. And the Lord's eyes are ever on those of the unborn as well. Let's read verses 13 to 16 in Psalm 139. For you formed my inward parts, you wove me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. Your eyes have seen my unformed substance and in your book were all written the days that were ordained for me when as yet there was not one of them. Now, when we're talking about the Bible and abortion, I just want to point out uh, preliminary, some preliminary things. Number one is the way you interpret Scripture is really important. So there's, a, there's about four pitfalls I want to um, encourage you not to commit. Uh, the first pitfall is um, never interpret a text of Scripture in isolation. You always want to take the, the whole of Scripture to understand a passage uh, that may not be particularly clear, but you want to understand the whole counsel of God so that you can more rightly interpret any passage in the Bible. Secondly, which really flows from this first one, is beware of the misapplication of texts. What happens is when we do look at its scripture and take it in isolation, we often misapply it because we misunderstand it completely. Thirdly, beware of interpreting difficult passages without first consulting the clearer passages. Uh, Why is that? Because it's better to go from what is clear to what is not so clear. Uh, It helps you when you're interpreting. And fourth, beware of the anachronistic fallacy. And what that is, is we force 21st terms and meanings into ancient texts. Don't do that. You're not faithfully dealing with the text. So try not to do that. And and I know we have all done it at one time or another. So now that I've brought it to your attention, don't do it. Um, In the pro-abortion literature, the reason I bring this up is because almost always in the argumentation in the pro-abortion literature, they commit one of these uh, errors, or even more so. And so as believers, you don't want to do that, especially if you care about God and His Word and what is real. And you want to get at what is true. Why? Because Jesus said, if you continue in My Word, you're going to 
Know the truth, and the truth is going to set you free. Which implies that the less we know the Word of God, the more bound up we are with sin, darkened by the hardness of our hearts. So, that's the first thing. Second thing, the Bible is unquestionably pro-life. Um, there are several texts uh, we're going to consider, but whether, uh, there's no text that says, thou shall not have an abortion. Okay? You're not going to find it. Um, but just because there's no text that says that, it doesn't therefore follow that it doesn't argue against abortion, generally speaking. For example, the fifth commandment says, Thou shalt not murder. This clearly prohibits the taking of an innocent human life. That's Exodus 20, verse 13. So the biblical use for prohibiting abortion is made by equating, and this is the key, the status of the unborn as a child or adult being outside the womb. And I'm going to argue for this. The pro-life advocate must essentially demonstrate not that God is intricately involved in fashioning the unborn in the womb. You may argue for that, but that's not the most important issue. The most important issue is to demonstrate that God attributes the same characteristics to the unborn in the womb as to a person out of the womb. So, what does Scripture show us? Well, first of all, Scripture shows us that our history begins at conception. For example, Genesis 4.1 says this, Now the man had relations with his wife Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain. And she said, I have gotten a man-child with the help of the Lord. Here, Cain's life is seen as a continuity. That is, the individual conceived and the individual born are the same person. How about Job 3.3? Here's what it says. Let the day perish on which I was to be born, and the night which said a boy is conceived. Now this is in the context of horrific suffering. Job is wishing that he had never been born. And yet, he says this, and when he says the term born and conceive, these terms are interchangeably used. It suggests that a person is in view at both conception and birth. As in Cain's case, so in Job's situation, the individual conceived and the individual born are the same person. They're the same person. Here's another one. God knows the unborn like He knows adults and children. Jeremiah 1.5, for example, says that God knew the prophet before his formation in the womb. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. So even before he was born, God knew him. Note this, that God does not know things that aren't real, that aren't true, even though they haven't yet materialized. A lot of Scripture, a lot of prophecy has yet to be fulfilled. And yet, God knows what will happen as if it's already done. And so, when you're dealing with a passage like this one, it argues that God 
knows Jeremiah, the youth in this context, before he was even born. So we can assume that when he was conceived, he already knew him, the person. Isaiah 49.1 says this, Listen to me, O islands, and pay attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother he named me. Again, what do you see? He is treating the unborn with the attribute that he treats both children and adults. Persons. They are persons. Psalm 139, which is our text, reveals personhood before conception as well. And in fact, this is one of the texts that we um, put on our son Adrian's um, marker up in um, the up in Green Hills. Uh, my wife uh, was uh, pregnant. Her her water broke. Uh, something was wrong. We went to the hospital. Three days later, um, she delivered Adrian, and he was st- he was dead. He was stillborn, and we buried him up there. And uh, going up there and looking at the marker and reading this text that all of the days were ordained for Him even before as yet there was one. And you, you, you know, we're dealing with passages and I'm going to give arguments, but this isn't just arguments and these aren't just passages. These are real people's lives. That matter. And don't get lost in everything you're hearing. But anyway, um, uh, here God's omniscience is revealed and specifically His foreknowledge. God knows everything. He knows things before they're going to happen. And God's knowledge is about an individual. It is about David, a person. Now there's a couple of objections. The first objection is that this text only deals with God's foreknowledge. Okay, But regardless, it may be dealing with His foreknowledge, but just like Genesis 4.1 and Job 3.3, it's arguing for the person that's being considered as the same person who later develops in the womb and then as a child and then ultimately to adulthood. Second objection is this is that it only demonstrates the development of a person in the womb, not that this is an actual person, but dismisses the point. Because even though these texts show that in the womb, from conce- uh, that, that from conception, you have a person with potential for development, not merely some being who will later become or develop into a person. In other words, there's an issue going on here, and you're you're probably picking up on it. If you're not, I'm going to point it to you. It's called the enduring eye. And that's not an eye like to see, but it's the eye of identity. You, Emily, you are identical to who you are. And you don't look anything like you did when you were in your mommy's womb, nor what you look like after you were just firstly birthed. And you certainly will not look a lot like you do now if you get much older like me. You just won't. But yet, we celebrate your birthday every year. The enduring eye. 
even though physically you change, there is something about you that does not change. That's called your soul. That is called the immaterial aspect of you being created in God's image. Which also means that you are not just matter. You're not just a body. But you are soul and body at least. Psalm 51 verse 5 says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Now the psalmist, which this looks like it's David all, all over, is not saying that he was born from an adulterous exchange between his parents. He's admitting that as Adam's descendant, he was conceived or born with a sinful nature. And so his sin nature is passed on to all his descendants. Now, one theologian, Norm Geisler, says this about this text. The very fact that humans are declared sinners from conception reveals that they are human. That is, part of the fallen human race. It is only by virtue of being part of the Adamic human race that we are conceived in sin. And so what's the general tenor of these texts? The general tenor is that God sees the unborn as persons. And that God attributes to them the same characteristics that children and adults are given. Now, there's one text, Exodus 21, verses 22 to 25, that um, often brings problems uh, to, the, uh, to this debate. And let me read it to you. If men struggle with each other and strike a woman with child so that she gives birth prematurely, yet there is no in injury, he shall surely be fined as the woman's husband may demand of him, and he shall pay as the judges decide. But if there is any further injury, then you shall appoint as a penalty for life, as a penalty, life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise to bruise. Now what pro-choice advocates contend is that this passage argues for a greater value of the mother than that of the fetus. Uh, the, penalty, the reason is because the penalty for causing the death of the fetus is only a fine. Whereas the death of causing, uh, whereas causing the mother's death is capital punishment. Therefore, it's held that the fetus has a lesser status of personhood compared to the mother. To the mother. Now, there's been a lot of debate over this, um, but some believe that the passage uh, that she has a miscarriage. So, but even if it is a miscarriage, it does not then follow that the unborn has less of a claim to personhood. Why? Because the penalty and personhood are not necessarily related. What that means is this. The penalty of, the, uh, uh, of what, is, uh, what takes place against the perpetrator is not the same thing as the status of the unborn. It does not negate that the unborn is nonetheless a person indeed. That's essentially what that means. Now when we're dealing with... That, that, that's a little bit of the Bible. Now let, let's deal with the book of nature. And uh, specifically... 
let's look into some philosophical arguments. Let's get into a little bit of science and uh, try to get um, clear on this issue. One of the things I want to point out to you, here are some preliminary con um, considerations when you're dealing with the abortion issue. There's going to be a few things you're going to hear over and over again, and one of them is the word, my rights. That's huge. So let me just explain to you essentially what a right is. A right is that which a person has due to them, that which one has a just demand, that to which one has a proper claim, the privilege, freedom or power given to somebody. Now this privilege, this freedom, is sanctioned and it is safeguarded by what is regarded as an authoritative source, be it God, uh, a ruler, uh, law, or even one's own conscience. And um, so th that's essentially what a right is. Now a moral right is the right to perform certain activity, activities because they conform to certain standards or ideas of the community. For example, it is the law, therefore we do this. I have a moral right to exercise this under uh, the rule of law. But not only that, a moral right, uh, you have the right to perform uh, these, activity, these activities because they are good. And there are rational arguments that support the value of such activities. Now, when it comes to an inalienable right, inalienable rights are natural, they are innate, in other words, they are incapable of being denied. Why? Because their source does not come from any human being, any government any law. Their scope is universal and it's had by all people. For example, the right to own one's, uh, the right to, to one's life or to one's property. Freedom from the interference of the pursuit of goals. Freedom from oppression and equality of opportunities. And so when you're dealing with the issue of rights, and um, the abortion issue. People think that it is their, their uh, um, privilege, that it is their just due to believe that they can have an abortion. Is that clear? Is that not clear? Kind of hazy? If you want my notes, uh, email me and I'll send them to you. Okay? So... Essentially, human right is something that is a privilege. It is given to you. An, in, an inalienable right is that which does not, its source is not from any human being, any government or law. Essentially, it comes from, it comes from God. Now, what's a euphemism? A euphemism is a harmless word or expression used in place of one that may be found offensive uh, in polite company. Um, some euphemisms are intended to amuse. Uh, others um, 
are used for disguising taboo topics like, um, you know, uh, disability, sex, death in a polite way. And it often masks profanity like the F word. What do we use for the F word? Don't say it, but you know. I hear it all the time. I hear it all the time. It's like, you just, okay, anyway. Um, so what we, what we often do, we, what we do as image bearers is we pervert and twist God's good gifts. And language is one of them. And the way language is used in this issue is really, really important to, to, to hone in on so that you are not um, believing something that is not true or so that you don't commit a logical fallacy. Um, now, uh, an example of a euphemism is how the Nazis used a euphemism to mask the heinous atrocities they committed against the Jews. What Hitler did is um, he looked to his wordsmiths, those who know, knew how to spin language, to veil the genocidal agenda of a, to realize a purer race by implementing what is, was called the final solution. Okay? Plainly speaking, it was exterminating over 6 million Jews. Now, theologian Michael Bauman says this, Great evils are often disguised by clinical language. Accurate words call the ghosts out of the closet. That is why we must learn to call things by their real names. That is why we must beware of every euphemism. But even now, decades after Hitler, we fail to speak plainly. Plainly, we don't use the M word when speaking of abortion. That is, we don't murder unborn children. We simply abort the fetus. This use of language, as I hope to demonstrate, desensitizes us to a horrific reality, which is the unjustified killing of a human being who has a full right to life. Who has a full right to life. In America, our history on abortion started a long time ago, but essentially it started um, in 1973, Roe v. Wade, where Norma McCorvey, who was Jane Roe, claimed that she was raped. Texas law was forcing her to have her child in spite of the manner of her pregnancy, but the fact is she lied. Later she admitted that she had not been raped, but became pregnant due to birth control failure. The court ruled that Texas laws prohibiting abortion, except to save the mother's life, were unconstitutional. These laws were claimed to violate the 14th Amendment of the Constitution, which protects one's right to privacy. Well, what is that? Here's what it is. The right to privacy is the qualified legal right of a person to have reasonable privacy in not having his private affairs made known or his likeness exhibited to the public having regard to his habits, mode of living, and occupation. And this right to privacy extended to the idea of the woman's womb. And so after the first trimester, abortion was available, but, but not entirely on demand. Let's fast forward. 1992, Planned Parenthood versus Casey. At issue in this case was a 24-hour waiting period before an abortion could be done. 
during which time a woman, is, a woman is educated in the procedure and risks of having an abortion. The parents are notified. The husband is also notified. Yada, yada, yada. Well, here what happened was this, that the court ruled the following in order to uh, reaffirm Roe v. Wade because it was sensing that the basic tenets of their prior ruling might be in jeopardy. Abortion rights are consistent with a woman's right to privacy grounded in the constitutional idea of liberty. Abortion rights are consistent with the idea of personal autonomy, the right to make major life decisions for oneself, and also bodily integrity which assures one's body is left alone. And so what happened was that the court further upheld the 24-hour waiting period, the parental consent with judicial bypass provision of the law, but invalidated the spousal notification provision because it was deemed to put the woman at risk should an emergency arise. And so, what are we dealing with in the abortion debate? What are we dealing with? We're dealing with, there's confusion on both sides. There is name-calling. There is the use of law. And there's confusion on what's actually going on. So let me just start out by saying what the pro-life position on abortion is. A, a definition. Since the unborn entity is fully human from the moment of conception, and abortion typically ends in the unborn entity's death, therefore abortion ordinarily entails the unjustified killing of a human being who has a full right to life. If, however, there is a strong probability that a woman's pregnancy will result in her death, as in the case of a tubal pregnancy, abortion is justified. For it is a greater good that one should live, the mother, rather than to die, the mother and her child. So when you are arguing or you are talking to somebody about that you are um, um, uh, pro-life, okay, you, you've got to tell them right away, I'm not outright against abortion if the mother's life is in danger. Now, abortion on demand. Abortion on demand and why is it legal in America? Here's a fact. Abortion on demand is legal in America for many reasons, but specifically for two. Number one, false claims of what's really the truth. And number two, ignorance of what ad uh, abortion on demand actually is. Um, abortion advocates despise, for example, sex selection as a reason for abortion, largely in principle, though it's permissible and it's practiced in many parts of the world. And the sad thing is this, that those who are on the short end of the stick are usually girls. That is, males are desired over females. And as a result, if one finds out that they are pregnant with a female, they will abort the female. And this does not just happen in third world countries. It happens in our country, in America, in the United States. That is abortion on demand. Now, 
Hillary Clinton, um, in an article that, that I, I didn't bring, just read it, um, it was uh, March uh, 2014, was talking about um, the fundamental rights of women. And what were included in there was the, uh, um, the, the issue of contraception and abortion that should be free and accessible to women everywhere all over the world. And so um, uh, people that um, argue that this is a woman's right, um, these are the kind of things that they say. And they couch you know, contraception and abortion together. They, 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 they throw in the pail also health care. And part of health care is abortion rights. Do you hear the euphemism there? How about prenatal development, abortion methods, and fetal pain? Why is abortion on demand so heinous? Well, if you find that somebody is willfully inflicting pain, let's say, on your cat, and prodding the cat, and poking the cat, and you see the cat is in pain, would you, would you be okay with a person doing that? I, I don't think anybody that's, you know, that cares a little bit about animals w- would object that it's wrong to do that. And yet, to defenseless human persons in the womb, that's exactly what takes place over and over again. And that legally. For example, there are procedures, brutal procedures, where the fetus, the child, is either crushed, is sliced, or dismembered within the womb to to take the, the, the child out. Another way that abortions are done is they use saline solution. And what that does is it burns not only the skin, but the lungs of the fetus. That ends up torturing this little baby. Now, some people say that the fetus can't feel it at a certain time, but the fetus and the times, if you, if you have abortion on demand, you can abort essentially any time up to nine months. So all this, all these things I've just shared are preliminary considerations. Now let's get to some of the arguments for the pro-choice position. Okay? Now the pro-life position is essentially this. It's one argument. It's one argument. It's based on the notion that the unborn is a person. And that issue has to be answered by those who oppose the view. In other words, it is not enough to call names, to be uncivil, to um, use what's called the red herring uh, tactic, which essentially is this. 
You're confusing a certain issue with another one so that attention is drawn away from what's really going on here. There are a number of arguments that the pro-choice movement advocates, but most of them do this, this one thing. They do what is called begging the question. And begging the question essentially is this, is that you assume the conclusion you are trying to reach without offering evidence for its validity. Did you hear that? You are assuming a position is true without offering evidence that validates your position. And you want to be careful, Christian, not to do that either. So, for example... They assume that the fetus is not a full person. That's what they do. So let's look at a a few of these. Number one, a woman has the right to do with her body whatever she chooses. This is the number one most common argument that is offered in favor of abortion rights. This is foundational to a woman's constitutional right to privacy. This was in fact appealed to by the court in the Casey decision. And while many people would not themselves have an abortion, they find themselves supporting this position on the basis that this is the woman's body. So how do you respond to that? Well, a person's right over their own body is not absolute. You know that, right? I mean, that's why we have laws against, in most states, against prostitution. That's the woman's right to sell her body. But we've got laws against that. We have laws uh, that uh, make it illegal to pour all kinds of drugs into your own body. So, you know, under the law, you know, a person's right over their own body is, is not absolute. Um, furthermore, the fetus is not her body. Fetus is not her body. Technically and genetically, the fetus has its own genetic code and distinct entity and in many cases has its separate gender identity. And that's a scientific fact. Being connected does not equal being identical. So it, it just doesn't follow that just because the fetus is connected to the mother by an umbilical cord, that this attachment somehow denies the separate identity, denies the separate identity of the fetus. And again, it's it's begging the question. Uh, it's assuming something to be true without arguing for and offering evidence. Here's another one. Society should not force women to bring unwanted children into the world. You heard that one. Abortion prevents unwanted children from coming into the world and thus prevents child abuse, child neglect. Okay? You hearing a euphemism? Well, first of all, you're begging the question. You're assuming that the fetus is not a person. But if it is, then abortion is the worst form of child abuse there is. What about a child's value? The value of a child cannot be determined in their degree of desirability. 
Think about that. The fact the child is not wanted is really a commentary, not on the child, it's a commentary on the parent. And if the fetus is a person, then whether it is wanted or not is irrelevant to their right to life. How about the homeless? In our society, the homeless, for the most part, people don't want anything to do with them. But we don't exterminate them like cockroaches. Why? Because we know they're, they're people, they're persons. For this argument to work, the pro-abortion position must ground their position on why the fetus is not a person. In other words, they've got to do the work. And some facts on child abuse. Since 1973, child abuse has increased substantially, even with the termination of uh, 1.5 million unwanted pregnancies per year. Now, this might be a direct correlation in after Roe v. Wade making it easier, making it legal to abort children that their value is not seen as great, but as less than. Here's another one. Society should not force women to bring into the world severely handicapped children into the world. This argues from the deformity of the fetus, which can be detected through a process called amniocentesis. And my son, we had that done when uh, Serge was in Trisha's belly, and they said that the, you know he might have a one percent chance of being Down syndrome. And you know they asked us, so what do you want to do? Okay, regardless, the point is this. The point is, if the kid is, has something wrong with it, you can get rid of it. You can get rid of it. Response, abortions in the case of deformity are a small percentage of the overall number of abortions performed per year. And they're clearly some of the most difficult cases in the, abor in the abortion scenario. At best, this shows that in extreme cases the person has the right to an abortion, but it does not support the view that a woman has the right to choose abortion as a fundamental right. Again, the argument begs the question. Uh, it assumes that the fetus is not a person, but if the fetus is a person, then this view can be used to kill off all handicapped persons. This is scary. This is just scary. This isn't okay. There are more arguments, but the point is this, that all of these arguments beg the question. They assume something to be the case, namely the status of the unborn as non-persons, and then proceed to make arguments for the right to abort. But if the fetus is not a person at the point uh, at, the, at the point in the pregnancy at which the abortion is considered, then most of their arguments are not valid. Or are valid. But if the converse is true, then none of their arguments are valid. None of their arguments are valid. And so the issue we turn now to is the personhood of the fetus. Now most philosophers agree that the fetus either has personhood from the point of conception or it acquires it at some time during the process 
of gestation. Now there are a few proposals I want to talk about. First of all, the agnostic proposal. And this is the position, it holds this. That since science has not been able to come to a conclusive decision regarding the personhood of the fetus, and the debate is primarily a religious philosophical one that cannot be proven conclusively, then the choice should be left up to the individual. By the way, every debate has religious and philosophical uh, notions embedded in them. So we're just going to what are you going to do? Stop debating just because there is a religious philosophical issue and science is not conclusive. Remember what I talked about at the seminar that in our in our culture science is seen as that which gives us facts, reason, knowledge. Religion is that which gives us personal meaning, but it does not give us knowledge. See how it flows into the abortion debate and in the landscape of, of, of the culture and how people reason. Now, a response to this is, you should err on the side of life. You should err on the side of life. If you're agnostic on the issue, certainly it makes sense to err on the side of life. For example, if you're on a hunting trip, you may have heard this before, but if you think, you know, a uh, hundred yards out, it looks like a bear, but you're not sure it might be a person, what are you going to do, shoot? Well, you might shoot if you don't like the person you think it is, Right? But all things being equal, you're usually not going to shoot. Why? Because you're going to err on the side of caution. That's called common sense. The fact is that uncertainty with the status of the fetus justifies caution, not abortion. Here's another one. The viability proposal. This position is held by the Supreme Court. And here essentially is what it is. The viability view considers when the fetus is able to survive on its own outside the womb. So at the 24 to 26 weeks of gestation, the fetus is able to live on its own. The fact seems to be significant enough to grant the fetus a status of personhood. While it still may depend on medical technology, no longer is it dependent on the uterine environment. Well, viability is not precise. Uh, viability to measure the personhood of the fetus is not a precisely accomplished measurement because the viability will vary from one fetus to another. Some kids survive, some don't. Uh, not only that, technology keeps changing and keeps pushing back the viability of the fetus to an earlier stage in pregnancy. So viability deals with the location and the dependability of the fetus. It does not deal with the essence or the personhood of the fetus. And that is huge. One is physical. One is immaterial. One is physical. One is immaterial. The immaterial one is the essence. In other words, the whatness of the fetus. What is it? So no inherent connection obtains between the fetus's location and its essence. It's an issue of medical technology helping the fetus survive in a different place. So, you know, people in comas, people uh, on, on life support. How about diabetics on insulin? Are they any less persons because they are dependent on these things to survive? Answer? No! No! Another proposal. It's called the brain development proposal. This is the most commonly proposed 
decisive moment is brain development or the point at which time the brain of the fetus begins to function approximately 45 days into the pregnancy. Now, this is along the lines of defining death. In other words, the cessation of all brain activity. And since brain activity is what measures death or the loss of personhood, it's reasonable to take the beginning of brain activity as the indication of personhood. I mean, here's a couple of responses. Number one, um, the problem with the analogy is that the dead brain is an irreversible condition, unable to be revived. The brain of the developing fetus is only temporarily non-functional. The fetus is alive. The second one, the EEG of a dead person is permanently flat. For the developing fetus, it's only momentarily flat. Mind you, one is dead irreversibly. The other one is alive and, there's, and it is developing. The fetus is developing. The embryo, from the, the embryo from the point of conception has all the needed capacities to develop full brain activity. And the conclusion is that using brain activity as the decisive moment for determining personhood raises serious questions about its utility in determining viability. Then there's another one. It's called the sentience proposal. And this view holds that the decisive moment of personhood is sentience. That is, at the time the fetus is able to experience sensations, especially pain. If the fetus can feel sensations and can feel pain, now it is said that it is a person. And, and, and actually this disarms a lot of pro-life advocates. But the response to this is that sentience has very little connection with the inherent personhood of the fetus. Uh, this confuses the feeling of harm with the actual reality of harm. Uh, if, if I'm paralyzed, for example, and I can't feel my arm, um, if someone cuts off my limb, I'm truly harmed even though I do not feel it. That's my arm. I have a right to my arm. Don't cut it off. And also, you know, there are horrific abortion procedures, as I've said earlier. Don't be fooled. Don't be fooled that the fetus is not feeling any harm. They are. They are. What about those who are unconscious? still under the sentience proposal. If sentience is the determining factor in personhood, then people in comas, people that are unconscious, even those who are sleeping, you know, you're having a great dream, right? But you're not conscious. You're not awake. You would have to be considered a non-person as well. Under this, you would have to be considered a non-person. Why? Because you're not conscious. Whether you're in a coma you're sleeping. Now an objection arises that says this, but these, but these people once did function with sentience and this loss of sentience is only temporary. Oh yes, but once they say that, once they object like that, they are admitting that something other than sentience 
determines personhood. Once this is done, sentience can't be used to determine the decisive moment of the personhood of the fetus. And there's, there's a few more examples, but I'm, I'm not going to go to it. Um, what are we to conclude? What are we to conclude with uh, some of the evidence that you know, I brought forward today? Well, biblically, God sees the unborn as persons because He attributes to the unborn the same character, characteristics that children and adults are given. The pro-life position is not anti-abortion. Since the unborn entity is fully human from the moment of conception and abortion typically ends in the unborn entity's death, therefore abortion ordinarily entails the unjustified killing of a human being who has a full right to life. But however, if there is strong probability that a woman's pregnancy will result in her death, then abortion is justified. The pro-choice position essentially says that a woman has the right to an abortion essentially on demand. The fetus is not seen as a person and thus has a right to life only if the mother so desires. The nature of pro-abortion arguments mostly beg the question. They assume that the fetus is not a person and then proceed to make their case. But therefore, without offering evidence, their reasoning is faulty and their conclusions are as well. And when we're dealing with rights, our rights have boundaries. Never do we have the right to unjustify, unjustifiably murder the defenseless, the weak, just because they are inconvenient. Most abortions are done under such circumstances. And concerning euphemisms, the use of language to hide egregious horrors like the Nazis the final solution when referring to the extermination and brutal murder and torture of Jews in Germany. Or even today in America, we don't use the M word when speaking of abortion. That is, we don't murder unborn children. We simply abort the fetus. This use of language desensitizes us to the horrific reality that there is unjustified killing of human beings who have a right to life, and this under the law. And why is this issue crucial? Why did I spend the time? never done this. On a Sunday morning, you're supposed to lift me up. You're supposed to preach the Word. Well, I think I have been. And I think we've been trying to look at both God's books, which we need to. The Book of Nature and the Book of Redemption to come to understand what is truth, what is real, and how do we speak to our culture. The fact is this, a society that does not protect those who are most vulnerable and weak, as the unborn are, cannot last. We have eliminated, we have disposed of an entire generation of people. In 40 plus years, we have as a nation aborted over 40 million precious unborn human persons. So what are we to do? What are you to do? Do you have to pick it? 
Do you have to write letters to your congressman? Do you have to be nasty? You know, what do you do? Well, I think you, you, we need to start with where we're at. We, we are responsible for the information that we have. And in our lives, when we are dealing with friends, family, and co-workers, and this issue comes up, we need to speak up. Because if we don't, who will? Who will? We need to get informed. We need to talk respectfully, but we need to be bold. You're going to catch a lot of heat for it too. So what? The life of the unborn is worth it. Now whether you've had or been part of the abortion of the unborn, if guilt is weighing you down, Jesus offers forgiveness. He loves to heal broken sinners, and that's all of us. That's all of us, folks. Father, I... I thank You, Lord, that You are the God of creation. That You are the God who is there. That if every single hair on our heads is accounted by You, so is every single precious unborn human person that is aborted is in Your view as well. And You care about them. As your church, wake us up. Wake us up, Lord. Forgive us for our apathy. As your church, help us equip ourselves so that we might speak the truth regarding this issue. Lord, may we fulfill that which you require of us as an in Amos, where you said that this is what you require, that we do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly before you. Lord, this is definitely an area where justice in the land needs to be done. And we as your spokesmen and spokeswomen need to get on with it. So Lord, I ask that You would help us be salt and light when it comes to the issue of abortion and the status of the unborn. For Your name's sake, Lord, I pray. And for the children. Amen.